0: We'll spend a little more time than you might think on the first chapter, but we're setting the stage to move pretty quickly through chapters two and three, which are the letters to the churches. We're really just going to be summarizing that. And then four and five, uh, we will take rather quickly. It's the vision of the throne room because I... Want to focus on what's probably the most confusing parts of Revelation, which are chapter six to the end. Uh, so, but so much foundation is laid in chapter one that we're going a little more slowly than we will uh, for uh, three or four chapters after that, <clears throat> and then we'll at least go a chapter a week after. But so we're we're going to read through. Uh, verse 8, but I'll start again with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this, I almost want to call this, I know it's Sunday evening worship, but I almost want to call it a class because it's going to have that flavor about it. Uh, A lot of of teaching, though I I tend to get riled in my teaching, but um, so you might call that preaching, but... um, that's why I'll have a lot of handouts. Uh original study I did ran something like 100 pages. I probably won't give you... I might give you that much, maybe more, who knows. But, um, and, and also because there's some thick things in Revelation, I think it's good to be able to take home and, and read it, right? Um, one thing that I'll probably give out as a take-home that's two to three pages is the structure of revelation built on Daniel, especially chapter two so that um, the, the whole what, what Daniel sees as future in the latter days, we'll look at this a minute here in a second, but but they're like there's a lot of material in showing the exact phrases then that revelation, John says, the latter days are now, they're the now days. (laughs) Okay? What he calls the latter days. And the way, uh, the language that Daniel uses in chapter 2 and the language that dots the sections of Revelation is the same. So John is specifically showing that his... This, what he is saying fits in the theme and structure of Daniel 2 and what Daniel says is, is going to happen in the latter days. John is clearly laying out it's here and now. We are in the middle of it. And it began with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it sets the whole tone uh, from the cross to consummation. These are the latter days. And and here's John, you know, saying it, it is and it will be until the final day that God brings everything to a conclusion. So you'll see his language then in chapter 1, verse 1 that we read, that these things must soon take place. So the latter days now soon take place. 22.6, he ends that way uh, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Um, So John's use of quickly, which is another translation, uh, is replaced by John's what soon must take place. This is uh, Wilcock in his Revelation commentary, Heaven Open, to bring events which were once distantly future into the immediate present, as He says, and then Beal states, what Daniel expected to occur in the distant latter days, the defeat of all cosmic evil and the ushering in of the divine kingdom, John expects to begin quickly in his own generation if it has not already begun to happen. So that's the perspective that we're going to operate with as we move through Daniel. Uh, it's not, as we indicated last week, it's not rele- relegated to the end of history. Revelation defines history between Christ's uh, first coming and Christ's second coming. That's, that's the glory and the wonder of this because it applies to all churches everywhere at all times. As, it, as you would expect it to. Uh, if, if as many have taught that it's all about what's going to happen in the last some even the last years, the last seven year tribulation, that that's what's in Revelation, then that leaves everybody else out in all of history. And it was written to a church in the first generation. It was for them right then. So they could have encouragement as they were facing uh, persecution So it applied to them, it applies to us, it applies all the way to the end. That's the beauty of this. Then in the next paragraph, you see, and I've just uh, given little snippets of these these passages. You could look at them on your own. But um, the idea that the latter days had come where there is expressed in many ways in the New Testament. In Acts 2, it says these are the latter days in the wake of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church, right? That's the event that occurs in Acts chapter 2, and it's announced that this is the latter days, you know? So it's really a combination of Christ's death, his ascension, and then the, at Pentecost, you know, these are the launchings of the new age, of the latter days. Uh, his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and then pouring out his spirit upon the church. Uh, Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1 speak of the fullness of time that is already upon them. First uh, Corinthians 10, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So the ends of the ages were on the Corinthians, you know, on them at that point in the first century. First Timothy four, in latter times, which Paul viewed were already present in the latter times. Uh, same thing in Timothy and Peter, were in the last days. That was also present tense. First Peter one, Peter describes Christ as having been revealed in the last times. This the the book we're studying in the morning Uh, that chapter 11, Hebrews 1 begins, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. And Hebrews 9, 26, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Isn't that interesting language? At the end of the ages, Christ appeared. Because we tend to think the end of the ages would be yet to come. But in one sense, The whole history of the world were the ages, and Christ capped all of that off and launched us into a whole new age, the age of his reign from heaven through the Holy Spirit. What a nice sound, huh? I just need a nap, that's all. (laughs) Um, James says, you've laid up treasures in the last days. And then 1 John 2.18 actually says, it is the last hour. He also talks about the antichrist in that. He says there are many antichrists. So we have to be careful with, you know, an idea that the antichrist is coming in the end when 2,000 years ago, John says, there are many antichrists and it's evident that uh, Because, and it shows that we're already in the last days. Um, So, uh, all of these passages set forth the understanding that the end times had come and they define everything that follows. Does anybody have any questions about that? Is it okay to allow questions? (laughs) Okay. You don't want to be the first one. You spoke in worship, you know, right? Okay. Um, so in this greeting, and I, I had several pages of notes on this, and I think when I created a new document to hand out, I must have made the other one disappear, but we're fine. Uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, the number seven is... That's John's favorite number in Revelation, and he uses a lot of numbers. Numbers are prominent, numbers are symbolic. Uh, Like the number 12 uh, at the end of Revelation, it talks about Jerusalem, the new city, that is 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000. It's a cube. Now, if you're trying to take things literally, you're going to be in trouble. You know, like the city is a cube that's one thousand three hundred fifty miles by one thousand three hundred fifty miles, and then you start imagining: are there steps, or what's going on here? It's a symbolic statement of the people of God, because twelve always represents the people of Uh, God—Israel, twelve tribes, and then the apostles. No accident that the apostles were 12 because they were forming the new Israel, right? 12 is always the people of God. Even the walls are 144 uh, feet, 144, whatever the unit is, thick uh, to point to the people of God. But seven is the sign of fullness. Uh, We get, it, it was derived from the seven days of creation, uh, you'll find they marched around Jericho seven days, right? Fullness. Uh, uh, some of the sacrifices were done over seven day period or there were seven libations, those kind of things to indicate fullness. And here in calling the seven churches, uh, it shows the fullness of these churches and that they represent the universal church. And You'll find as he addresses each of the churches in chapters two and three, it's an individual church, but at the end of all seven, the Spirit will address the churches, plural, to show that each of these letters is to the whole church. And then after chapter three, after he's addressed the seven churches, they disappear, and it's a universal church from chapter four to chapter 22. So that's... These then are just just represent the whole of the church uh, as they're being uh, addressed, and that's indicated by the seven churches. Then, <clears throat> grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. The background is is God's uh, message to Moses, saying. I am who I am. He, he revealed himself and said, Say this to the people of Israel I am, has sent me to you. Now, prominent in that staying, uh, saying, of course, is his uh, continued eternal existence as God. It's more personal than that, as, as revealed later in Exodus, uh, but he, he means that I am all that I am, I'm here for you, right? but I am absolute in my power. There's nothing that can uh, withstand me, and I'm here for you, Moses, and for my people. Uh, but it's that, that idea of time, which is indestructible, immovable, always there, always governing all things. It's, it's a way to express his absolute sovereignty at all times in all the earth. And you get... Uh, further passages, Isaiah 41, who's performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Who could do this over generations but the one who is the first and the last? Uh, Isaiah 48, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. My hand laid the foundation of the Earth in my hand, spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So you see the association of being the first and the last. That's why I control all things. I create the world and I sustain the world because I'm the first and the last. And then, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no god. Only God is the first and the last. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. it. Let him declare it and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Uh, So to say grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come is to say you're going to get grace and peace if you believe it. Nothing can stop his grace and peace coming to you. Nothing can stand in the way It is abundant, and he will give you that grace and peace because he is sovereign. And it sets the tone for his sovereign rule that's expressed throughout this whole letter. An interesting thing, you expect him to say who is, who was, and who will be, but he says who is to come. And that gives a sense of the dynamic unfolding that's going to occur in... uh, in Exodus, as he ranges through, as we pictured it last week, he ranges through history uh, th- four or five times, um, and and all moving to that final end of the consummation of all things. So instead of saying who will be, it's like who is to come, indicating he is coming in the end uh, as the one who will consume, uh, consummate all things. Uh, So beginning and end, and he's going to roll out history to his desired uh, conclusion. And this reminded me of Paul's great words in Ephesians 1 when he's talking about the same thing. And he says there, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, which we're in, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So there it is, a plan that's obviously an eternal plan uh, to uh, unite finally all things in heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. Um, And a little later, he says he's uh, rolling everything out according to his own purpose. Everything is... Fixed in that regard. Well, that gives you some sense of what he means here by who was and is uh, and who is to come. The seven spirits b- who are before his throne—that's probably one of the weirder things in uh, Revelation, because uh, we thought there was one spirit, but he says there are seven. But again, that idea of seven, fullness, the fullness of the spirit, uh, the un unlimited riches of the Spirit that are available for us. The full Spirit is the one who dwells in us. But he is called uh, several times uh, the, the full uh, or, or, or the seven uh, Spirits. Um, this is fr- originally from Zechariah 2, where Zechari- he shows a vision to Zechariah and Zechariah sees this, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And then a few verses later, he said to explain it because Zechariah didn't know what it meant. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now you're pretty familiar with that um, kind of regularly quoted verse, but it's connected with the seven lamps and the seven lips on each lamps, which represent the spirit. So again, the seven is there. Uh, Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is Christ who has received the spirit and poured it out on his people. But here it says he's received the seven spirits, and that's to indicate to us the richness and fullness of this spirit that is, is poured out on uh, God's people. Then later in chapter 4, verse 5, in the throne room of God, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and then finally in chapter five, or six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. That's his power, horns. His seven eyes are his unlimited wisdom. There's no limit to his power. There's no limit to his wisdom, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the idea of the seven spirits of God Pictures for us, oh, there's seven, they can fill the whole earth. Well, the fact is, the one Spirit fills the whole earth, right? But it's just a picturesque way to help us get at uh, the abundance of the Holy Spirit. You can see the Trinitarian emphasis uh, in this blessing Uh, it's from Him who is, who was, that's the Father, from the seven spirits, the Spirit in a different order than we're used to, and then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And he calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. We we don't, in the first place, think of Christ as the faithful witness. They thought of it uh, immediately and treasured the fact he was the faithful witness to the truth of who God was and the truth of the gospel in spite of it costing him his life. I'm opening my watch so I have the time, sorry. Um, And this is so important for them because he's been a faithful witness before them and this whole book is about being a faithful witness and overcoming in the midst of persecution, faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ and living out the gospel of Christ no matter what and not abandoning the faith because of either the pleasures of the world or the persecution of the world. And Christ is the supreme example and he gives us his spirit, spirit of Christ so that we can be faithful witnesses as well. So this is such an encouragement for those people who are being persecuted because Christ is their faithful witness, the one who died for them. Uh, and, and he faced death. Because, now, on, from the standpoint of God's plan, he was dying for our sins. But in terms of just what's happening on earth, his faithful witness brought him death. Maybe your faithful witness will bring you death. Of course, in their day, many were going to face death, but Jesus had gone before them as the faithful witness. Uh, the firstborn from the dead has, of course, that, that he's the first of many that will come. It's like the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if there's a first fruit, if there's a first little section of harvest that represents all the harvest that is coming, and there's that sense here. Uh, the firstborn. There's also, though, the sense of firstborn in the Old Testament sense, where the firstborn has rule over everything, uh, rules the families, uh, the uh, rest of the family, and and uh, is the one who has absolute authority over all things. And as such, he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And you only need to recall Ephesians one, where all power in heaven and on earth is under him. And so it's not only the kings of the earth or rulers of the earth, but all the invisible powers of the earth, demonic powers, anything that would oppose Christ's church. And in Ephesians, it's really interesting, and there's a good bit of this in Revelation as well, that Christ is at the right hand of God, all power is under him, and then immediately, Paul goes in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses sin. He, in his mercy, raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. The association commentators regularly say, means Christ is rule over all powers and we are with him at the right hand of God. That's why we're not subject to these powers why we can resist the Satan and he will flee from us, why we can uh, have continually changed lives, why uh, Satan cannot stop God from gathering in his church around the world. Um, so one of the marvelous statements, uh, ruler of the kings of the earth, and we are brought into that rule uh, i remind you, I think we've talked about this on Sunday night before, but if you'll turn over to chapter 2, verse 26, and recall that in Psalm 2, when God is laughing at the nations because they've risen up against him and against his anointed, uh, and he says that my anointed, which of course points to Jesus Christ, will break the nations with his rod. Here is how we participate in his rule. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now that's enough right there, right? I will give authority... What does that mean that we'll have authority over the nations? It's it's certainly rule. It's certainly kingship that we share with him. And then it goes on, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He is not Christ at this point, although it's in Christ that this happens. But he's saying, the one who conquers, you people who conquer, you people who stay faithful to Christ to the end... You will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. It says more than you even feel comfortable with. You know, it's like, how could you say this about us? How could we participate in this way, apparently in the judgment of the world? And it does make you wonder what are we going to be in our glorified state? What is going to be, be our connection to Jesus Christ and how how vividly we will participate in his rule on this earth? Um, so this statement, the ruler of the kings of the earth, points to the whole end of Revelation, but it also helps to set up who we are and how we participate in the rule of the kings of the earth. Then this wonderful ascription of praise to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are made, I think I'm gonna skip on uh, we are made a priesthood. Uh, the greatest, maybe one of the greatest sections of this you may be familiar familiar uh, familiar with, is First Peter chapter two, where um, he says in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And of course, whereas the priests of the Old Testament went in once a year, and we hear from Old Testament studies that they tied a rope around the chief priest, because he might die in the presence of God. That's how tenuous it was to be in the presence of God. And when we planted a church and they were meeting in this really neat place, down the hall, as you first come in, was the nursery. And uh, I go back there to look at what they're using as a nursery. And the curtain there says, oh, wow, this is like going in the Holy of Holies. And they said, yeah, we tie a rope to him as well so they can get him back out of the nursery. <laughs> but isn't that amazing that from the one person who comes in once a year and offers blood of an animal to we who have the blood of Jesus Christ living in the presence of God at all times Constant access to him with no fear. Full access. Amazing what he has done. Because he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Something no animal sacrifice could ever do. Why did he do it? He loves us. And I'm so happy that it's a present tense, right? Right? And it's fine. He loved us and gave himself for it, but it's wonderful. He loved us and he loves us, right? He loves us because he loved us to free us from our sins and that love continues to this day. That's why we are this priest. We are priests made intimate with him, uh, accepted by him. He loves us in his presence. He delights in us in his presence. We read at the end of Jude just, just across the page that we will, he will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's our joy and his joy. He, will, he sings over us. He rejoices over us to do us good. It's amazing that we're priests and intimate with him forever. And then this... Uh, We'll probably, I'll just wait on the coming of the, with the cloud statement because there is, it's so rich uh, in meaning. But I do want to at least read, and we'll close with this. The background for this is Daniel uh, chapter 7. And this is also the background for Jesus' use of the word, uh, of the phrase, Son of Man. You know, he, he called himself the Son of Man, it's his most popular uh, self designation. And it, it, some might think that's because he was identifying as a, as a human being. That is part of it. But this is another part of it and is all the more significant when he says, even the son of man came not to be served but to serve. And here's the background. And I looked, thrones were placed. This is chapter 9 of uh, chap, uh, verse 9 of chapter 7. one like a son of man and i it just thrills me that jesus took this because it it was kind of a hidden way to say i am the son of man and i will bring about i I will rule the the world as the messiah and uh, that's that's who i am and yet not revealing it ahead of time and announcing things that would have caused a stir before he was ready to be crucified um so we 'll talk about this and talk about how he 's coming in the clouds is not just a statement about the end, but it 's a statement of his constant coming to the earth to bring life and judgment and rule throughout history uh, that that 's some of what this indicates, and it 's really a thrilling verse that i don 't want to brush over well let 's pray, Father, we thank you for uh, This uh, letter that John has composed, uh, we thank you for how it helps us understand where we are in history. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of living in the latter days, the days of Christ's resurrection and reign from heaven, the days of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the days of the extension of the gospel throughout the earth, and nothing can stop the extension of that gospel for it is the lord jesus who rules all things he will gather in his sheep as he said he all that the father gives him shall come to him because he is the ruler of the kings of the earth and will bring all things to his chosen consummation thank you lord in the midst of such confusion violence, abundant sin on every level in all places, that this is the true meaning of history, that Christ is ruling, Christ is judging, Christ is gathering his people, and all things will finally be united in Jesus Christ. And the curse, all sadness, all sin will be removed from this world forever and ever. We praise you. Hallelujah. Christ Jesus. Amen.